Father, we gather right now around your word, <clears throat> and we ask that as we explore this together, that, Lord, you would speak right into our individual souls, into the soul of our church, and that you would speak and you would minister, and that you would bring transformation to who we are. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak into each of our lives a word in season for us, and that, Lord, as we encounter your word, we would encounter your heart, and therefore encounter you. Come and have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been an interesting week, hasn't it? Personally speaking, the past few weeks have been somewhat challenging. And over the past couple of days, as I've been trying to kind of quiet the heart and the spirit, that my, my spirit is drawn to a particular passage of Scripture that is an incredible promise from Jesus. It's from John 14, verse 27, where Jesus says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. And do not be afraid. These words were spoken by Jesus at the Last Supper. Just as he is about to cross the threshold into a very dark, very challenging, but yet very significant season of his life and his ministry, he, he gathers the disciples together and he begins to minister to them. He seeks to prepare their heart for what they're about to face, which is a time of trial, a time of testing, a time of doubt, of grief, of uncertainty. They are going to experience a complete whirlwind of emotions. And how amazing is it that just moments before his own torture and death, just moments before his own incredible pain, Jesus is others-focused. He's about to face the darkest season of his soul, but yet here he is taking time to prepare the hearts of his closest friends for what they're about to face. And he speaks of their hearts and he says that their hearts are not to be troubled and they're not to be afraid. The original language that is used here is interesting because what Jesus is actually saying is that their hearts are not to be agitated. And the word agitated is linked to the agitation of water. Like when waters are stirred or when waters are disturbed or troubled. And he says that their hearts are not to be agitated or disturbed. Equally, the original language says that they've not to be timid. That the things that the disciples are about to face are things that would naturally trouble the waters of any soul. They are things that would naturally impact the courage and the strength of the innermost being of any person and begin to induce fear. So what Jesus does is he gathers them together and he speaks into what they're about to face because forewarned is forearmed after all, isn't it? And he does arm them. He arms them with what they need to endure because he gives them peace. My peace I give to you. He gives a peace which is a gift. My peace I leave with you. He gives a peace which is his legacy to them. And this isn't just any peace. It is a peace that is beyond that which is cultivated by a natural means. It's not a peace that is determined by what the world gives or what the world throws at us. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding because it's his peace. It's Christ's own 
peace. It's the peace that resides at the very core of his innermost being. The peace that guarded his mind and his spirit is that which he gives and is that which he leaves. And that's something that we focus on today. The peace that Jesus gives and the peace which he leaves. The peace that he releases is a peace that remains. And these words, perhaps, there's no way to know, but they perhaps spark some memories for the disciples. Because a very similar set of words were expressed by Jesus and experienced by the disciples at the beginning of their ministry. Turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And we're going to read from verse 35. Since that day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up and the waves broke over the boats so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to the disciples, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other. They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. This moment occurs early on in the Gospel of Mark. And therefore, we assume that it takes place early on in the ministry of Jesus. Certainly, according to Mark's timeline of things, in chapter 3, Jesus has just appointed his 12 disciples. And according to the outworking of his gospel, he spent the time between the appointment and this miracle taking place, he spent the time teaching and speaking in parables. And that means that this miracle that we unpack together this morning is the first miracle that Jesus performed according to Mark's gospel timeline. It's the first miracle that he performed with his 12 disciples in situ. It's the first miracle he performed on their journey of discipleship. So therefore, it actually communicates quite a lot to us about the experience of discipleship and about the journey of discipleship because actually what we're reading is a journey. As evening arrives, Jesus addresses the disciples with a simple instruction. He says, let us go over to the other side. Now, he's speaking about the other side of the lake. You'd be forgiven if Jesus turned up and said, let's go to the other side, that you're thinking, it's my time. <laughs> he's not talking about eternity here. He's talking about crossing over to the other side of the lake. And the wording of Jesus kind of communicates almost a friendly conversational tone. It's almost friendly. It's like he's saying to them, guys, let's, let's, let's do a journey together. Let's go. Let's embark on this journey. And you know, ultimately, this is the heart of discipleship. It's what discipleship is all about. It's about accepting the invitation of Jesus to journey with him. It's about beginning a lifelong journey with him that begins to transform who you are, begins to transform your experience in life, your mindset towards life, your function within life, your belief system and worldview, your whole being becomes transformed in the process of discipleship. And that's important for us to call out because we often think that the 12 disciples that he selected and put into place, they were these guys that had it all together. They were biblical superstars. 
spiritual superheroes and giants that worked alongside him and facilitated his ministry and, and were part of seeing heaven touch the earth and they had it all together. But actually here in Mark chapter 4, that is definitely not the case. Because we read here that they've just been appointed as his apprentices. He spent time teaching in their presence. In fact, the verses immediately before these ones in Mark chapter 4 tells us that Jesus spent loads of time teaching the crowds and teaching the multitudes, and he was speaking in parables. But when they came back behind closed doors, Jesus took a deep dive with the disciples, and he didn't speak in parables, but he spoke plainly to them, and he unpacked to them a theology of the kingdom, and he made clear to them and made known to them the depths of the, of, of the beliefs and, and the truths about who God is. And yet, even though though that is the case, at the end of this miracle, we encounter the disciples asking, who is this? Who is this guy? Even the wind and the waves would be him. And that's mind-blowing. They've just given up everything to follow him. They've been appointed as his right-hand men. They spent time in this master class with Jesus where he speaks plainly and unpacks things and mentors them in the theology of the kingdom, and yet they still come to the place of going, who is this guy? And we're being a bit flippant here. But actually, this is the journey of discipleship. It's the journey of continually being amazed by Jesus Christ. It's the journey that brings with it new and deeper revelations of Jesus, deeper understanding of Him, deeper experiences of the character and the nature of Him. It's the journey of growing and changing because each encounter and experience is one by which we are transformed more and more into His likeness. It's the journey of being constantly blown away by Jesus, of coming to that place of going, who is this? You know those moments where you work with someone for a long time and then suddenly they start cracking jokes and you're like, who is this guy? Where did that come from? We haven't encountered or recognized that part of his character before. Who is this? Just when we get to the place of thinking that we've got him all sussed out. Just when we come to the place of thinking, I've seen what I need to see and I know what I need to know, he suddenly brings us to a place of going, who is this? There's more to learn. There's more to recognize. There's more to discern. There's more to discover. The 12 begin their journey with Jesus and the journey that they begin is one that is instigated by him. And that's important. And don't worry, I'm not going to go all Calvinistic on you. I'll keep my Calvinist tendencies to myself and to those of us who are the elect. But here's the, that's a joke, by the way. Please don't write complaints to my boss. Here's the thing, right? Jesus instigates the movement in this moment. He requests the journey. He sets out the destination for the journey. He is very much in control of the journey that they are making because he has decided where they're going and he has decided when they are going. All that they do is obey. It's all that they do. And here is a huge and massive lesson. When we surrender everything to Christ and we step out in all-out obedience to Him, He controls the journey. He controls the journey. He shapes the movement. He sets the direction. He facilitates the timing. He controls the circumstances, the situations, because He has the roadmap. And that means he navigates the soul. 
He sets up the occurrences and the experiences. He plots out the destinations, the viewpoints, the pit stops on the way. He puts in place for us what the soul needs to see, what the heart needs to hear, and what the mind needs to grasp because he is in control of the journey. He sets up those light bulb moments of awe and wonder where we end up asking ourselves, who is this? This is a new component of God that I don't recognize because it's something I've never experienced before, never grasped before, never considered or understood before. This is a different dimension to his divinity. This is a new revelation and understanding. This is fresh mercy. This is love abounding. This is amazing grace. You know, when we make him Lord of our lives, we have to realize he's in control of the journey. He invites us to journey with him. Come on, let's journey together. You can hear almost a friendly conversational tone. However, let's be clear, he's the captain. He sets the course. He controls the pathway. Our job is just obedience. To step out in obedience and trust him. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him. And what's he going to do? He's going to direct the path because he's in control of the journey. Our job is trust. How reassuring is that? Our job, all he asks of us is to trust him. None of us, none of us know what the future holds. None of us can say for certain what the contents of our tomorrow are going to be or even what the full out workings of today is going to be. But here's the great thing. We're not actually called to know that. We're not called to lean on our own understanding of stuff. Actually, what we're told to do is that we have to acknowledge him. What does that mean? It means that we acknowledge what he's calling us to. We acknowledge what he's asking us to do. We acknowledge the way that he's calling us to function and behave within the circumstances of life. We acknowledge what it is that he wants us to say, what it is that he wants us to do. And we step out in obedience to that and trust. And as we do, he begins to direct the pathway because he's in control of the journey. Child of God, your job is just to trust. Trust the process. Because he's in control of the process. Right now, he is putting into place in your journey what your soul needs to see, what your heart needs to hear, what your mind needs to grasp. He is setting up the light bulb moments that floor us with awe and wonder time and time again. And we don't know what the journey is going to look like and we don't know what the journey holds, but we will and we are certain of this. There will be fresh mercy. His compassions will never fail us. There will be abounding love and his grace will be beyond amazing. We just need to trust him on the process. The disciples, they just respond with obedience. There's nothing in the text to say that Jesus says to them, let's go to the other side, and they have a conflab about it. And they get together the travel arrangements committee, and they talk through the way that this is going to work. There's nothing in the text that suggests that Jesus says to them, let's go to the other side, and they say, but why? Why the other side? What's on the other side? What's the plan for the other side? What will happen on the other side? Have you thought about maybe we should be going to the other other side? They don't do any of that. They just trust it. And we see that in the phrase where it says, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was. Really interesting language. It's kind of odd. You're like, why don't you just say they went to the other side of the lake? 
But he says, no, they took him along just as he was. It's kind of suggesting that this was an instant reaction. In other words, Jesus didn't head home to pack an overnight bag. They didn't divide and conquer to get supplies for the trip. It's almost as though this was a spontaneous spur of the moment thing. He said, let's go, and they just went. They trusted the process because they trusted Christ. And this journey was one that saw them leave the crowds. In fact, the King James Version says they dismissed the crowds to pursue the journey. And there's a really obvious point here that you've probably arrived at in your own minds already. And the obvious point that we make make and call out about the journey of discipleship is that it's one that involves being willing to step away from the crowd. It involves being willing and ready to step aside from the popular, from the familiar, from that which is known in order to journey deeper in relationship with Him. And on the journey of discipleship, there will be times when we have to be countercultural. There are times when we have to be different. Times that we need to nail our colors to the mast, put a stake in the ground and just stick out from the crowd and reject the popular option and reject the normative direction. There's times that we just have to dare to be different. The journey of discipleship is not always one that will be comfortable, but eternity will prove it's one that will always be worth it. But a point that actually we emphasize today is that if the crowds and multitudes were left behind, or even if they were dismissed on the shore, that means that the miracle that took place, the revelation and display of glory and power and and the understanding and insight that accompanied that, well, all of that took place out of the spotlight. This very transformative miracle of Jesus took place on the journey. It took place as they stepped out in obedience and trust. And it took place out of the public eye. And you know, we have no doubt that there are times that God displayed His power and glory to multitudes and crowds. The Gospels are crammed of moments that towns and villages at a time were captured in awe of Jesus. The Old Testament is packed with treasured stories of glory and power manifesting to entire nations of people all at once. But we're also aware that some of the most profound revelations of God that have transformed our understanding and shaped our theology of Him, some of those most profound revelations took place out of the public eye when God came down to individuals inside wine presses, when He walked through a garden in the cool of the day or lit up a bush with supernatural fire and says, get your shoes off, you're on my ground. When he covered mountains and tabernacles with glory clouds and invited just the one to come in, but the many to stay afar. Moments when people were isolated and alone in desert islands and then suddenly found themselves in the courts of heaven. Moments when individuals are called to stand at the mouth of a cave as the natural elements put on a display in a show. Times when the captain of the Lord's army turned up and spoke, angels came down inside temple courts to solitary priests or into the houses of ordinary teenagers just to speak to individual hearts one-on-one. Moments when the whole host of heaven lit up the sky for just a handful of people around a campfire. Times when visions were seen through the eyes of hearts or the word of the Lord just turned up and came within someone's spirit and their dreams and prophetic oracles or divine visitations. The point is, when we think about it, 
some of our greatest understanding and theology of God was gifted within precious happenings that took place off of the public stage, but very much on the platform of personal devotion. Moments in which heaven touched the earth and instigated a journey and his soul stepped out in trust and obedience. They had no clue that their faith journey would result in a worldwide revolution that would impact souls on every continent millenniums after they'd been buried in the dust. Some of our greatest miracles, some of our greatest revelations of God are actually found in the moments away from the crowd. In moments of intimacy, yes, but in moments when the heart steps out in obedience to him and trusts him in all-out devotion. Now, Mark tells us there were, in actual fact, other boats on the journey. But he also tells us that so furious and so wild was the storm that there is no way then that those in those other boats would have seen or heard the actions of Jesus in the vessel that they were following. That revelation of what Jesus said and did, that understanding belonged to those that journeyed intimately with him and in proximity to him. What's the application? The application here is that when we step out in obedience to Jesus, when we give control of the journey to him and just trust, he is going to begin to show us what our souls need to see. He's going to speak what our hearts need to hear. And he's going to teach us what our minds need to grasp. He will bring revelations, experiences, and understanding to transform us into his likeness. But what Jesus does on our boat won't always be understood and seen by those journeying alongside us. But that doesn't mean it's not God. You can imagine the scene of the disciples landing on shore and as the other boats pulled up, them saying to them, you will never believe what happened out there. And some of them probably saying, you know what? As quickly as the storm descended was as quickly as it lifted. Some of them might not have seen or grasped it, but it didn't mean it didn't happen. And it didn't mean God wasn't at its source. There will be times as we step out in obedience to him that what Jesus does on our boat won't always be seen and understood by those journeying alongside us. But that doesn't mean it's not him. And that doesn't mean it didn't happen. Equally, not every revelation needs to be voiced in the court of public approval. Not every ministry moment, not every revelation from God needs a Facebook post or WhatsApp spreadage or to become a YouTube sensation. It doesn't all need to be decreed and declared from the church platform. The revelation and ministry from God doesn't need to be seen, heard, and grasped by everybody else in order for it to change you. Because that's why God spoke it. He spoke it to you to change you. He released it into your journey and your process because that's the venue within which he designed for it to bring change. And yes, there's moments in which we do need to testify to what he's doing. And yes, there's moments in which he speaks and it needs to be decreed and declared from the church platform in order to encourage everybody else. But the point is, it doesn't need to be grasped and heard and accepted by everybody else to be validated as God or to bring change within your life. The disciples set out on a journey and the text tells us that a furious squall came up. Now, the term squall is not one that we are familiar with. And it means a storm caused by wind. 
Not the kind after Brussels sprouts, that's an entirely different kind of storm. But it carries the connotation of a whirlwind. And it's interesting that the text describes the temperament of the storm to us. It's furious. It's interesting. The original language describes it as exceedingly large and loud. And that helps us to picture this really significant storm came in upon the lake. And the effects of that are also described to us. The boat that Jesus and the disciples are traveling in is being swamped. Again, the original language helps us out. It means entirely full. So the boat that Jesus and the disciples are in steers into the storm and it's so strong and it's so loud and it's so powerful, the boat is almost sinking. They're in danger of going under. And again, there's an obvious point that we make from this about the journey of discipleship. And that is that the journey of obedience is often marked with hardship and difficulty. The journey of fulfilling the call of Jesus can at times be swamped with the storms of life. Stepping out in trust does not make one exempt from hardship. And it doesn't matter how much you name it and claim it, doesn't matter how much you bind it and loose it, it doesn't matter how much you decree and you declare it. Stepping out in trust does not make one exempt from hardship. Jesus was in the boat and his boat steered into the storm. He was not exempt from hardship. Stepping out in trust doesn't make us exempt from hardship, but it's how we navigate through it that matters. And it strikes me that Mark is careful to call out that the boat carrying Jesus and the boat carrying the disciples is not alone. There are other boats Verse 36 says, leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were also other boats with him. And when we read this, we just read that there was a boat and there was other boats, but again, the original language helps us out because the word for the boat that is carrying Jesus actually suggests a large boat. But the other boats, the King James Version translates it really well. It says there were other little boats alongside little echo ones. There were other boats traveling alongside that were smaller. And this is significant because everybody steered into the same storm. But understanding the dimensions of the vessels would mean that everybody's experience within it wouldn't have been the same. If the disciples' boat was bigger and it was being swamped by the waves, then imagine what the experience would have been like for those in smaller vessels. We've got to be mindful that although at times we face similar storms in life, not everybody weathers the storms the same way. And that can be hard and frustrating, can't it, when you come alongside someone who's going through what you've been through, and so you give them all of your wisdom, all your hints and tips as to how you get through it and what they should do and the way that they can navigate it. And it can become frustrating when you don't see them putting it into practice, but that's because although we experience the same storms in life, we don't all navigate through it the same way. And our pandemic landscape has proven that to us. We were all in the same storm, but not everyone experienced it the same way. Some found it really hard. Some loved it. Not the pandemic bit, but the isolation bit. And some still are trying to figure out what they felt about it. 
However, it's clear that while every boat steered into the same storm, only one boat contained the power to change it. Because one boat traveled into the storm with Jesus on board. And the disciples were able to use their proximity to Jesus to bring change within the situation. They roused him, and their interaction with him results in deliverance and rescue. Now, we've already commented on the fact that the storm was so loud and the storm was so severe that it would have been unlikely that the other boats would have been aware of the interaction that was taking place between Jesus and the disciples. But while they might not have been aware of the actions of the disciples, they did become fully aware of the results of those interactions. They might not have seen, they might not have heard, they might not have known or understood the conversation and the dialogue that was taking place on Jesus' boat, but they did experience the change and the deliverance that it brought. And here is a beautiful illustration of the power of a discipled life. As we journey in proximity to Jesus, it's not so much that we contain the power to transform the circumstances of life. We have no power. It doesn't matter which way you dress up the bestowal of authority from heaven into our lives. The truth is this. We do not contain any power to transform the circumstances of life, but we do have access to the one who does. And as we connect with Jesus within the circumstances of life that we are positioned within, that interaction contains the power not just to bring change to our lives, but also to bring real lasting change and transformation to those who journey in proximity to us. The journey of discipleship is one that is marked by prayer and relationship. It is one that is marked by intercession. And this is a brilliant picture of intercession. And this becomes important then because we believe that God is releasing to us a spirit of intercession. And it could just be that over the next wee bit, God, I think, is going to lead us into unpacking that with us. But here is a beautiful picture of intercession. Intercession is the unseen action of the church. It is in actual fact the greatest service of the church, not service as in gathering, but service as an act of service. It is the greatest act of service of the church, an act of service that is often unseen, unknown, and not understood by those that actually benefits. It is when the people of God begin to lay hold of God within circumstances, within communities, and within cities, and begin to interact with Jesus in such a way that it releases change and begins to rewrite the stories of hearts, and it begins to rewrite the stories of entire communities, and it begins to rewrite the stories of our workplaces and of our local schools, and it begins to rewrite the stories of our family. It's when we begin to lay hold of God in such a way that it begins to rewrite the story of our city and change the stories of life with the hope and the power of God. It is the greatest act of service that we can ever do, but yet it will be unseen and unknown and unrecognized by those that it touches. The disciples rouse Jesus in the boat and they say to him, teacher, don't you care if we drown? This sounds quite accusatory. But again, we come back to the original Greek, which translates as, is it of no concern to you that we're going to drown? Their questioning highlights the temperament of Jesus against the temperament of the storm. As they set sail, the boat gently rocks Jesus to sleep. Specifically, we're told Jesus was asleep in the stern on a cushion. 
The positioning is important. In boats like these in biblical times, the stern of the boat was arranged as a place for distinguished and honored guests. It was an area with a little bit of carpet and a pillow or a cushion. And such guests were in the helm of the ship or in the stern of the ship next to the helmsman, the person steering the ship. So what we see is that Jesus is in the position of honor at the helm of the ship and he's asleep. When the Prince of Peace is in the place of honor in the helm of your life, you can navigate through any circumstance of life and find peace within it. Jesus sleeps. It's clear that the storm is not a concern for him because he just sleeps right through it. I don't think it was a case of, well, Jesus is a heavy sleeper. As soon as his head hits the pillow, he's out like a light. I think what we're seeing here is that Jesus is at peace in the storm. He's not disturbed by the storm. He rests in peace at the helm. And as the waters become agitated and as the waters become troubled by the severity of the storm, the disciples are gripped with fear, but Jesus exists in peace. And his peace is not natural. It's not natural to exist within such a position of peace in such a severe situation. It's not natural to exhibit such peace when enduring such difficulty. But that's because his peace is a supernatural peace. There is a supernatural peace guarding his heart and guarding his mind. And his peace is not determined by what's going on around about him. It's not determined or impacted by what the world gives or the lot that life throws at him. His peace is determined by his identity as the Son of God and the purpose that he's been sent to fulfill. And he knows that God's purpose for him is to journey to the other side of the lake. So he's at peace because he knows it doesn't matter what happens between one side of the lake and the other. He's going to reach the destination and fulfill his purpose. In other words, he trusts the process. His peace is one that surpasses the agitated waters of trauma and distress. It's a peace that is greater than trials and tribulations. His peace is not determined by what the world gives. It surpasses understanding. And if it surpasses understanding, then it's found in a position of leaning into trust and not leaning in to our own understanding. The supernatural peace of Christ is found in a place of trust. We see it here and we see it in John 14 as we opened. John 14, the disciples are about to journey through an unexpected experience of grief and trauma. And he tells them they're not going to be exempt from what is ahead of them. They won't be exempt from the heartache and the hardship. But he calls out how they are to navigate through it. They are to navigate through it with peace. He says, here's how they can have that peace. He describes his function and he describes his reaction. He says, here's what he's going to do. He's going to give peace and he's going to leave peace. He's going to release a remaining peace. And we see that in his function in Mark 4 as we bring this into close. He says, he got up rebuked the wind and said to the waves, quiet, be still. The wind died down and it was completely calm. The disciples roused Jesus and we notice three things that he does in response to the situation. The first is he changes his position and his function. He says he got up. It strikes me that Jesus could have just opened one eyelid, spoke the words and went back to sleep again. But he doesn't, he gets up. 
He stands in a position of authority within the storm. Here is a beautiful picture of intercession. It's when we bring the circumstances of life to Jesus and bring them under his authority. It's when we begin to interact with him in such a way that his authority becomes the authority within that situation. Then he rebukes the wind and he spoke to the waves. And we've got to assume that the order of his actions is reflected in the order of what he says. And that makes sense because he rebukes the wind by saying, quiet. He deals with the temperament of the storm. The storm is furious. But he brings the temperament of the storm into an encounter with his temperament, which is peace. And he says, be quiet. The loudness of the storm meets the peace of Jesus. The function and behavior of the storm encounters the function and behavior of Jesus. And this again is a picture of intercession. It's when we bring the circumstances and the situations of others and our communities and our cities and our workplaces, and we cause and we call for the function and behavior within those situations to encounter the function and the behavior of Jesus. The Greek word for rebuke means to censure or to forbid. Jesus begins by dealing with that which is causing the storms. He deals with that which is causing the difficulty and he tells it to be quiet. He forbids it to speak and operate. He releases peace in that moment. And then he speaks to the waves and he says to them, be still. After dealing with the cause of the storm, he then deals with the effects of the storm. He tells the waves to be still. Again, the Greek word here means to be muzzled. He's removing the bite from the storm. He's stopping that storm from having any impact or causing any pain to those that are there. Actually, he's doing more than that. Because in the other places where the New Testament uses this Greek word for be still, it's actually translated as hold your peace. Could it be that Jesus is determining the function of the water? He tells them to hold something. They are to hold peace. Even the literal sense of our understanding of what hold your peace means is him saying to the waters, don't lose your peace to the storm. You are to behave and function holding on to peace. So what he does here is he gives peace and he leaves peace. A peace to remain and reside upon the water. And all of this takes place within a moment of authority. And we don't have time to go into it, but Jesus' authority is wrapped up in peace. He is the Prince of Peace. He comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, a sign that symbolized the king coming in the name of peace. He manifests miracles and healings with the words, your faith has healed you, go into peace. He's released his forgiveness of sins with the phrase, your faith has saved you, go into peace. His manifestations of his kingdom, his authority is displayed in peace and his death and resurrection purchased our peace and he leaves to us and gifts to us his remaining and abiding peace. So when Christ is in the place of honor at the helm of your life, when he is in charge of your journey, it doesn't mean that you're exempt from hardship, but it does determine the way you journey through it. You journey through it with his peace. The peace of Jesus guarding your heart, guarding your mind, a peace unlike any other, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a supernatural peace that is found in the place of trust. Jesus, it would seem, rebukes the disciples. He says to them, Why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? The original language says, why are you agitated? Why are your hearts 
so disturbed? Why are you timid in this moment? Are you not certain? In other words, he's saying to them, are you not certain? When I said we're going to the other side, that we get to the other side. He says, guys, trust the process. Trust the process. This morning, this afternoon, here is an amazing truth. When you surrender everything to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, He is in control of your journey. He is setting up what your heart needs to see, what your soul needs to hear, what your mind needs to grasp in order to become more like Him. He is in charge and He calls you just to trust. Not to lean into your own understanding, but just to trust. Trust the process. Trust the Christ who is in charge of your process. And as you journey, you will experience hardship and difficulty because we are not exempt from that. But he calls out how we are to navigate through that. We are to navigate through it with peace. When he is at the helm, when he is in the place of honor at the helm of our lives, he gives to us his peace. A peace that is released to remain in our innermost being. That means it doesn't matter what's going on. We have access to the one that will hold us fast every step 